And we're going to read Jonah chapter 3, verse 3, right the way through to the end of the chapter, end of the book, sorry. So I better have a drink first. Jonah chapter 3, verse 3. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast and all of them from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion. And did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O oh Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said, I'm angry enough to die. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this vine, 
that you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Please keep your Bibles open there. And thank you, Clover, for coming to speak to us today. God bless you. Thanks, John. Uh, Good morning to all of you. Thank you for having me back. It's a delight to be here this morning. As John said, please do have your Bibles open at the end of Jonah. Let's pray as we begin. Father, as we come to consider the end of this famous story, the conclusion that gives the whole book its meaning, we don't want to look down on Jonah from across the centuries. We want to hear your voice speaking into our lives and our hearts, convicting us of where we are not like you, you in whose image we are made and are being renewed for the glory of Christ. Work deep this morning, Father. Amen. Now, sometimes if you watch a film um, or you read a book or you see a TV show and you've seen it before and you know how it ends, you know the twist it finishes with, you see clues along the way as to where it's going. You realise, oh, that's why that happened, because you, you know what the story was about in the end. And I believe it's vital for us as God's children to understand what he's saying through this book to know how it ends. Because ironically, with with Jonah, the end, the real ending, God's ending, and therefore the true ending, is one of the least well-known bits of this book. Often, it's completely missed out in children's Bibles, or even some Sunday school lessons. And if we do that, we miss the point. We miss God's point. We miss what he wants to say through this book. Now, before we dive in uh, to the bit that John had read, I just want to recap what happened. I know many of us will know this, but it's worth worth a refresher. That's the world at the time of Jonah. Uh, The important thing to realise is that John was talking about Solomon earlier. After Solomon, the kingdom of Israel splits into two, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom is a complete state throughout. There are no good kings there. And that's where Jonah is at this time. That's important because we'll come back to that. Jonah's a prophet in the northern kingdom. Now, the Assyrians, who are over here, they're on the rise. So they're they're not the big power they would become, but they're heading that way. And this shows where Jonah lives. Uh, There is. And God tells him to go here, to Nineveh. And Jonah's famous response is to go, I don't think so. And he heads to the port of Joppa and he catches a boat intending to get to Tarshish, which was probably in modern Spain, could have been Sardinia, no one's quite sure. But it's the opposite direction. Okay? But God has other plans for Jonah and for Nineveh. Uh, now, I admit that's an approximation of where Jonah went in the fish, but I imagine it was something like that route. He was in the fish for three days before he's vomited onto a beach. He then obeys God. Um, now, when he was in the fish, if you looked at Jonah chapter 2, you'd see this great hymn of praise about how he was sinking down and he was drowning and he could even feel the weeds in the sea. And then God sent the famous fish and, and it swallowed him and made him safe and he's full of that. But then he heads off to Nineveh and he preaches and revival heads out. And where we are today is in a hut just outside. Now, It's important to know that the the Ninevites were really not very nice people. 
Really not. They were terrible people, in fact. Not only were they pagan idolaters, but they were famed for their cruelty. This is a couple of entries from one of their kings, King Asher Nazpal II. These are a couple of entries from his chronicles. I caused great slaughter. I destroyed, I demolished, I burned. I took their warriors prisoner and impaled them on stakes before their cities. Another example. I fixed up a pile of corpses in front of their city. I flayed the nobles, meaning I skinned them alive. I flayed the nobles as many as had rebelled and spread their skins out on piles. I flayed many within my land and spread their skins out on the walls. Now, that was the kind of thing, if you were an Assyrian king, that you boasted about. You know, in the last few weeks, we've heard lots of charming anecdotes about our queen. People who bumped into her and didn't realise things that she did that were funny. People that she loved. Now, if you were an Assyrian king, that wasn't what you wanted to be remembered for. You wanted to be remembered for just how tough and how cruel you were. It's what they wrote down. And yet it's to people like that that God sent his word. Now, what kind of God is interested in people who do stuff like that? It turns out, isn't it, it's the real one. There's something quite extraordinary hidden in most of our translations. You look at verse 3. My Bible, it says, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to live in Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Only the Hebrew doesn't say it was a very large city. It says it was great to God. Now, why on earth that's not translated is beyond me. It's the whole point. Nineveh is a horrible place filled with horrible people. And yet God is filled with compassion for them. Because unlovely people matter to God. And the king, what an absolute hero this man is. He listens to God. It doesn't say Jonah spoke to him, actually. Jonah's message spreads like wildfire through the city. And he hears it. And he listens to God. He gets off his throne. He takes off his robes. And he sits in the dirt. And he leads his people in repentance. He is a king humbled before the king of kings. And I know all that stuff with the animals seems weird to us. But actually what he's saying is, we really do bow the knee. We really do. And he did it in the terms that he understood. He didn't know much about God, but he knew that he was in trouble. And that's the power of God mediated through his word. That's all that's needed for this revival. One man and this huge city. And it's no match for the word of God. And this is where we are this morning, though. Most of our chapter takes place just outside the city in a small hut. Now, if you pretend you'd never read the book of Jonah before, and you read what happened in chapter 3, this extraordinarily revival, and then I said, yeah, there's a fourth chapter in the book of Jonah. What would you think the fourth chapter would contain? Would it be Jonah's mission follow-up meeting, where he taught his new converts the, the, the word and the law of God? Would it be a triumphant return to Israel, where he would say, look, you will not believe the power and grace of our God? Or would it be a a great hymn, a psalm of praise and thanks for the mercy of God that would match what he had prayed for himself in chapter 2? Well, you wouldn't have guessed what we actually get, would you? A man who is so miserable at the success of his own ministry that he wants to die. He is gutted that his mission succeeded. Jonah wanted no converts and God gave him 100,000 plus. Now, this is a man whose heart is so hard that he cannot see the glory of grace. Jonah loves judgment. 
He loves it. He believes in a holy God. He loves to tell people that are under judgment. And he loves the fact that he can look at a world and say, the wicked will one day be punished by my God. But if grace comes to those wicked, then he's not so happy. Jonah's only one of two books in the Bible that ends with a question, actually. Uh, Just so you don't get distracted if you're a Bible nerd, the other one is Nahum. And it ends with a question because God wants to probe our hearts. That's why we ask questions, isn't it? And the question he asked Jonah, if we hear that, we'll hear the question he's asking us, which is, does my heart look like yours, Lord, or does it look like Jonah's? That's the issue that we're looking at this morning. The start of Jonah 4, we don't find him penning a psalm of grace. Instead, he's working on a tune which I think he would have entitled Stinking Grace. And the first line would be, Stinking Grace, how sickening the sound that saved a bunch of wretches like them. Now, just two points as we dig into that. The first point is offensive grace. And the second is wonderful grace, offensive grace. Uh, Verses 1 to 5 of chapter 4. Verse 1 of chapter 4 says this, But this to Jonah... This revival, this colossal success of his ministry, seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He is livid here, Jonah. He's been let down by just about everyone. That's how he feels. The Ninevites, the Ninevites didn't even have the decency to be evil the one time he needed them to be. The one time he needed it, he couldn't count on them to be wicked. They only went and listened to his sermon, didn't he? They only went and repented. And what was worse than that, you can tell from his anger, is that God then forgave them. He cannot believe it. It seemed very wrong to him. In Hebrew, that's it was evil to Jonah. Jonah passes moral judgment on God for forgiving the wrong people. Verse 2, he prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. This is typical, isn't it, God? That's what he says. You never change, do you? You're always about forgiving people when they repent. Now notice, Jonah isn't embarrassed by the fact that God forgave them. That is not what he said. Sometimes people say that. Well, he must have felt embarrassed. He talked about judgment and didn't come. No, Jonah's absolutely clear at the start of the book that this will be the outcome. That's what he says. I tried to forestall it. I couldn't stop it. We need to listen to the text, not what we imagine the story might be or what we might have felt. Jonah did not flee to Tarshish because he was scared to go to Nineveh. He doesn't say that, does he? That's not idiot either. Again, I've heard that many times. He, He had to learn to trust God to do something difficult. Not what Jonah says. Jonah's absolutely confident of who God is. His problem is with the character of God. That's what he says. And he quotes there, many of you will know, from the book of Exodus. That's massive. Because what he's saying is, God, this is who you have revealed yourself to be in your word. This is how you always are. And I don't want any part of it. Verse 3 shows just how angry he is. Lord, now take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. That's quite a prayer, isn't it, for someone who was drowning and a huge fish comes and saves his life and he's all full of, isn't God great? And now he just wants to be dead. The overwhelming success of his ministry, the the, the unprecedented, really, miracle of revival that we see here, 
has sent him into depression. Life is no longer worth the trouble. Previously he couldn't stand the Ninevites, now he can't stand them and he can't stand God either. This is who you are, I've had it, he says. Now God responds rather wonderfully to this. I've often heard it said that there are three answers to prayer, yes, no and wait. Uh, I think we can add a fourth, don't be so stupid. Um, But the Lord replies, is it right for you to be angry? Now you'll notice, if you look at the word there, Jonah's in no mood to talk. God speaks to him directly, and the next thing we find is Jonah just walks out the city. He's not answering. He ignores God, and he goes and does some building work instead. Jonah had gone out and sat down in a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter. So he, he goes out of the city, he won't talk to God, and he's gathering, you know, sticks and bits of stuff, and he makes himself a shelter. Why? So he sat in the shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Now you've got to admire his commitment, because what does that mean? He's still hoping it's going to be destroyed. He's hoping that God will change his mind. He's hoping that they'll all turn out to be fake conversions. Now his commitment to his hatred of these people is quite astonishing, isn't it? There's an important clue as to how Jonah ends up like this. Verse 2, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by going for Tarshish. What he's saying is that none of what's happened with him with the fish, none of the grace that he was shown that he celebrated, has changed his attitude to the Ninevites one bit. He was happy to be saved, but he did not want them to be saved too. Do you see that? It's extraordinary. See, Jonah thinks that him getting grace is fine. He's a good sinner. Grace is for people like him, decent sinners, not for the likes of the Ninevites. See, he makes no connection between the extraordinary, undeserved, overwhelming grace and mercy that he is shown by that fish that, that, as we know from our New Testaments, is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ and his salvation, his rising uh, from the dead. He makes no connection between that and the grace, the very same grace being offered to people that he doesn't like. Which means in some senses he thinks he is more worthy of salvation. He is worthy of having a fish sent to rescue him. But the Ninevites are not. They're beyond the pale. Now I do believe the book of Jonah is written in a way to to catch our attention. but, But it's completely true. I believe all this happened exactly as described because Jesus did. And you can look that up in the Gospels. But I think the way that that, that God has recorded for this is meant to make us kind of laugh at Jonah and at the same time pause when we do so it gets into our hearts through our sometimes thick skins. You see, it's easy, isn't it, to say, oh, well, I'd never be like Jonah. I'd be delighted to see revival. You know, I've been praying for it for years. I'd love to see these things happen. Wicked nations turn to God. Oh, that'd be brilliant. The vilest offender who truly believes. Amen. But think on this for a moment. Is there anyone you can think of that it would offend you to see saved? Just think. Anyone you would say, Lord, not them. Can God, should God forgive mass murderers, child killers, rapists, atheist comedians who have made millions mocking the God of the Bible? What about those who have dedicated their lives to lifestyles which are the complete opposite of what the Bible says God approves of? You know, those people that you can see, they come up on the news or on TV. If you're watching it with your family, you say, we're not watching this, and you turn it off. 
That's how Jonah felt. Now remember, this isn't universalism. It's not the idea that everyone gets to heaven in the end. It's very clear that no one we would have thought of, and none of these Ninevites, are just let into heaven. The Ninevites, like, or the Ninevites heard the word of God and they responded in repentance and faith. And anyone has to do that. We have to do that. No one is just let off. But Jonah isn't alleging the Ninevites have just been let off. He's saying that if God was good, his grace would go elsewhere. That's his problem. He regards them as unforgivable. And to forgive them by God would be a great evil. That's what he says. Now maybe for us though, it's not a question of who, but a question of priority. God can save whoever he likes, but he should start with the good people first. Do we believe the people we like and love are more worthy of grace than others? Because our children have applied themselves at school, got decent jobs, contributing to society, are decent people. Are they more deserving of grace? Are they more deserving of grace than a heroin addict who cheats on benefits? Should they get a higher place in the queue for grace than a jihadist? If our kids or our grandkids turned their back on the Lord, like the people of Jonah's time, remember where we started, the people Jonah left were heading in the opposite direction to God. They were heading towards destruction and exile. And those would have been Jonah's friends, his family, the kids he grew up with. They weren't listening to him. They were turning away from God. So what would it be like? And how do we feel if our kids, our grandkids, they turn their back on the Lord and all we see in their lives is hardness despite our prayers and then God saves the same-sex couple down the road? What if he saves that doctor who you know for years has been recommending abortion. What if they get grace and someone you care about who has never done any of those horribly wicked things is headed for destruction? See, that's where this gets me. Because otherwise I look down. It's easy to forgive the Assyrians, isn't it? I've never been bothered by them. I don't care what they did to people. Yeah, they skinned people. Doesn't sound very nice. Not people I knew loved it centuries ago. But God didn't put this in here so we would look down at them or Jonah across the centuries. He wants to speak to our hearts. Are there people that you and I think God should be working in? And if he's not and he saves other people instead, we would charge him as Jonah does. Because we readily, don't we, we forget that grace is not grace. If it's deserved, neither is mercy. And if we dig into that, perhaps we find Jonah isn't so hard to understand Overall, if we think in any of those ways, if there are people who, who don't deserve grace, or there are people that definitely do, then perhaps we know a little more of Jonah's heart than we would want to admit. If we do, we make one of three mistakes. One, we make ourselves God. See, the book of Jonah is all about the sovereign grace of God. In chapter one, if you don't know it, there's a fantastic story of how there's these pagan sailors and they've got Jonah on board, uh, and they cry out to their gods, and nothing happens. And then they find out that Jonah's running away from the living God, and, uh, and under protest, they throw him from the ship, and the sea goes calm. And what happens? They worship the living God, and they take his covenant name, and they are converted. We see that. We see, we see God's grace to a rebellious prophet like Jonah, who he keeps, keeps coming for. We see his grace to an evil city and an evil king. Jonah thinks he should get a say in who gets God's mercy. Do we? Second mistake, we think little of our own need for salvation. 
See, I think perhaps for me this is one of the most striking. Jonah is literally full of praise for God when he saves him. He's full of amazing grace. If you'd swum next to that fish, you'd have heard, and can it be, muffled coming out of it. But then he looks at other people and he would deny them that same salvation and grace. And when we do that, we reveal that we have not understood what it took to save us. There are no small sins, as it is said, because there is no small God to sin against. All sin is treason. It's not just a mistake. We need to stop using that language. It is reaching out for the throne, as Adam and Eve did, and saying, I know better. I know better than you. And none of us stood any chance of getting into heaven aside from the grace of God. The loveliest person you know, the sweetest person you know, the sweetest person I've ever met was my nan. She is in heaven now, and she is, but by grace alone. She got in the same way as the Ninevites, through that narrow gate. And third, if we think like that, actually we demean the glory of Jesus. What I mean by that is whose, who is the sacrifice of Jesus too small to save? Because the cross says sin must always be punished. No one ever gets away with anything. There are two places that sin can be paid for. The cross of Calvary and in hell. And every sin is paid for in one of them. But who is so much of a sinner, so bad, that their sin is greater than the glory of Christ at Calvary and can eclipse it? And that's what we're saying if you believe that grace should be off limits to anyone. Now, this bit of the story is so often missed out in children's Bibles. So often missed out. And and what happens if we do? They'll become self-righteous little Pharisees. They'll become little Jonas who want to put the limits of, uh, of grace on their friends, the people they like, and they will look down on others, the people that laugh at them, the people that tell them they're stupid to believe in God, the people who call them outdated, ignorant bigots. They will look down on them. Parents, when that happens, when they're persecuted or they feel scorned, as they surely will do in this society, how do we lead them? Because we have two choices, don't we? We point them to the one that bore thorn and nails for people who are unworthy like them, or we lead them outside Nineveh and help them build a hut of their own to look down on others in self-righteousness like Jonah. If we've got kids, teenagers in particular, Talk to them. See if they know how Jonah ends. And if they do, do they understand it? So we find Jonah in those early verses. He's singing loudly of offensive grace. But he doesn't have the last word. He doesn't have the last word because God does. Verses 6 to 11 are all about wonderful grace. It's funny, isn't it? Sometimes in the media you hear the phrase, the God of the Old Testament. Do you hear people say that? They say, oh, the God of the Old Testament. I don't like him. No, 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 no. I like Jesus, but I don't like the God of the Old Testament. It's seen as almost the greatest insult there is to be the God of the Old Testament. Mean, narrow-minded, cruel, unloving, xenophobic, whatever. And the way people talk about the God of the Old Testament is often cuts a pretty horrible figure. But of course, this chapter is about the God of the Old Testament. God's whole problem with him is that he's got too much grace, too much mercy, too much forgiveness. That's, that, that's the fault that Jonah finds with him. Jonah's problem is he's precisely who he said he is. You saw that, didn't you? I knew that you are. You know, Jonah goes to Nineveh fully confident of who God is. 
In Jonah chapter 4, as always, God is good to his word. He proves himself to be wonderfully gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. And we see that actually in this chapter with his dealings with one person, the way he deals with Jonah, and his dealings with many people, the Ninevites. You see, wonderful grace in Jonah. Just how does he respond? How does God respond to this miserable, ungrateful man? I mean, imagine if God did that in your life. Imagine if that was it. A hundred, like literally, under your ministry, Bath is converted. And you were angry with God about it. And you told God that you wanted to die. What do you think a holy God would say to you? What would we do if we were that God? A man he's, he's saved from drowning in the most spectacular of ways. The man who has enjoyed probably the most successful short-term mission in history. What does God do? I don't think it's as we'd expect. If you're a parent or a grandparent, one of you have ever had this experience, you plan a great day out with your kids. And you get the whole thing lined up and you stay up late kind of making sandwiches or whatever it is you're doing. And, you know, you've bought the tickets, you've got it all planned and you're determined this day is going to be brilliant. It's going to be one of those days in their childhood that they always remember. And you get 10 minutes into it when the fighting starts and they're miserable and they're not enjoying it. And the smiles are all gone and they're talking back to you and you lose it with them and you say, you better start behaving because today is going to be brilliant and you are going to enjoy it. After all you've done for them, how could they behave like that? Given Jonah's behaviour, wouldn't we actually expect this book to finish a little differently? Wouldn't we, wouldn't we almost expect that, yes, judgment doesn't fall on Nineveh, but it small, falls on a small hut just outside it? Wouldn't it be a surprise, given how small-minded and ungrateful Jonah is, if he himself fell under the judgment of God? And yet, what does God do? He talks to him. Did you see that bit? Did you see that bit where God speaks to him and Jonah turns his back on the living God and walks out of the city? And he still thinks he's going to prove God wrong. What does God do? He keeps talking to him. He keeps asking questions. He sends this whole thing with the plant to help him to understand. Now, what does that tell you our God is like? He really is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger. Grace is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Shows he's not the God of dead religion, but of relationship. He's not about church attendance or doing your bit. God wants Jonah to know him, to understand him, and to share his heart. If you read the book of Jonah and you miss out chapter 4, you miss the point. This book isn't, are you running from the will of God? It's not, does God want you to trust him while you do something scary? It is about the state of our hearts. That's what this book is about. Because God wanted Jonah not only to receive grace, he wanted Jonah to be transformed by it. He wanted to share his heart for the unlo- not just love judgment, but to love the God who warns in order that he might show saving grace. And he wants us to do the same. He wants to transform us so that his character, his heart becomes ours. And so for a second time in the book, actually, God doesn't abandon Jonah. He reaches out to him again. Jonah ran off. When he went to Tarshish, he's resigning. He's handing in his papers. He's saying... I'm not interested in working for you. It turns out I know what you like. It's not for me. God doesn't find someone else, does he? He doesn't go and find someone who's more faithful. 
someone who, who, who perhaps would be a bit more pliable. No, no, no. He sticks with Jonah and his patience doesn't run out. He doesn't strike him down. He doesn't abandon him. He doesn't just say, well, if you want to sit outside Nineveh and miss the party, that's fine. I'm ignoring you now. You can come back when you're ready. Just this whole thing with the plant. And the context of that is verse 5. Jonah had gone out of the city, sat down at the place east, where he made himself a shelter, sat in the shade and waited to see what would happen. And God, God, he meets Jonah right there, outside the city, that he should have been in rejoicing. That's where God meets him, and he does it in an extraordinary way. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant. That's like he provided the fish. And he made it grow over Jonah to give him shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plot. Now note that. It says to ease his discomfort. In, in Hebrew it says to save him from discomfort, to, li- to deliver him from it. Jonah's going to be taught a lesson about salvation here. Second, you see Jonah's response. He was very angry in verse 1. Now he's very happy. All that's changed. He's got luxury accommodation to watch Nineveh being destroyed. He's now got his premium leather seat ready. He's missing the point completely because what does God have planned? Look at verse 7. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm. So we've got giant fish he provided to plants he provided to the worm, sovereign over them all. God provided a worm which chewed the plant so it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so he grew faint. So his beloved plant dies... And then God starts like, essentially, he turns a hairdryer on in Jonah's face. And it isn't to annoy him, it is to teach him. It's not to just give him sunstroke, but to get through to his heart. What happens, Jonah wanted to die again. It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Now, Jonah, he's still in no mood for talk. After all this, what's his response? It is. I am so angry, I wish I were dead. And still God speaks with him. At what point in this story would your patience have run out with Jonah? This is the God of the Old Testament. This is the God of the Bible. This is the living God who is with us by his spirit. This is how patient our God is. In our sins, in our complaining, in our ingratitude in our willful unforgiveness and hardness towards others. This is who Almighty God is to you this morning. A wonderful grace shown to Jonah. A wonderful grace shown to the Ninevites. I love this. You come to the final two verses of the book as we finish up. But the Lord God said, You have been concerned about this plant, Jonah. Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and it died overnight. Jonah, this plant over which you are now so upset... So upset that you're telling me you want to die, it was actually a tiny thing. You didn't make it grow. You didn't even look after it. It came one day and it was gone the next. So what is Nineveh to me, the maker of all things? Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals can't tell their right hand from their left. That's a metaphor for their spiritual and moral confusion, the darkness that we enter into when we turn from the living God. Now, they weren't innocent. They are ignorant. If they were innocent, they wouldn't have been under judgment, which they were. If they didn't repent, they would have paid the price. Their lives were evil. They were under God's wrath. But even then, God had compassion. 
He made them. He gave them life. He gave them everything, in fact. He's the one that they've been thanking all their false gods for, for, for everything. Their health, their food, the rest. And he looks at that mess of offence. And he looks at the mess in as God and the men. And he has compassion. So he cares for all his creation, even the shockingly rebellious parts of it. He cares for those animals who would be lost if he destroyed the city. It's kind of cattle, the idea that if all, if all the farmers go, they don't know how to look after themselves. And collateral damage matters to God. See, the contempt for all life in creation you would see in conflict, say the Ukraine, you do not find it with our God. He cares for all he has made. What did Jesus say when he was faced with rejection and hatred in Jerusalem? The cross coming into view. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you are not willing. We have to understand this story in the light of the cross, don't we? The compassion God showed Nineveh was possible because one greater than Jonah would come. The one on whom every sin and every atrocity that every repentant person in that city ever committed would be laid on his back. They had faith that God might forgive. They turned from their evil ways and God did. But judgment did fall for all those sins. Only not out of the sky on Nineveh, but on the Son of God at Calvary. It didn't fall on Nineveh that day. It didn't fall on Jonah either because one day it would fall with full force on a cross outside Jerusalem. But this question at the end raises a crucial question, I think, for each of us. It's what gets under my skin. Those of us say, yes, I know Jesus. Yes, I know all the great hymns of salvation. Yes, I would say that Jesus is the best. Do we share his compassion for an unlovely evil, rebellious world. Now, we may not be as active or, or outward in our hatred as Jonah was. I doubt it. But if you have built a hut in your back garden from where you hope to watch the destruction of the ungodly in Bath, then, then let me know. But in your use of time, in your praying, in your giving, we reflect God's heart for his world. When, when he hears how our heart speaks of those who hate him, as the Ninevites did, does he hear only the judgment that Jonah loved and none of the compassion that he longs to share? See, those people with their so-called alternative lifestyles, they didn't just spring up overnight. Each one was handmade by God, alienated from him and under his wrath, yes, but made of him, as are we. Now does my life not what I sing or say, but does my life and my heart reflect the compassion for God? One who never soft pedals sin, but meets it with the power of the cross. That's the final question of the book of Jonah. And this morning it asks me, is my heart moving to become more like my God's or more like Jonah's? Amen. Amen.